You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Speaking of forgetfulness, if we could be honest, forgetfulness is a problem for any one of us at any given time. We are prone to forget important dates, important people, people's phone numbers. Uh, There are people that will text us something about themselves but not introduce who they are in the text, assuming that we just know who that is and we have to sort of say, hey, I I don't know who this is. Forgive me if that's offensive. I didn't save your number the last time you texted me. If you've ever texted me before, some people surprisingly will somehow think, oh, you're just supposed to know. Other important dates, I'm happy to report that my sister and her husband just had their wedding anniversary yesterday, and I remembered, and I was able to call her and wish her a happy anniversary. I have no clue how many years it's been, though. I forgot that how many years it's been, but I did not forget the date And uh, so I'm like halfway on the brother's scale as far as how good of a brother I am in remembering my sister's wedding date. Well, whether it's forgetting important dates or whether it's forgetting your keys, we are often prone to forget. We can even forget, if we didn't forget our keys, we can forget where we parked our car at. This is why they've got these like geo Bluetooth tags now where you can put it on things that you're important, that are important to you that you don't forget where they are and they can make a sound or you can find them on your phone so that you know where they're at and you kind of walk around like you're searching for something. Inevitably, we're forgetful people. We know that. Each other knows that about each other. You know who also knows that? God knows that. God knows that we are forgetful people. And because of that, God often, throughout Scripture, gives His people signs. Signs to remember, whether they're signs of rocks piled up of a great work that God has done there, uh, significant things that God has accomplished in the lives of His people. One such example of this is in Genesis chapter 9. If you're not familiar with the Bible, let me just give you a quick synopsis of it in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. It's a story of beginnings. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is how Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 begins. In the beginning, and the story of beginnings speaks about how God did so much and yet how man rebelled against God. In fact, tragically, but necessarily, in Genesis chapter 6 and 7, we read of the reality of God's judgment on mankind and the universal flood that came as a result of man's rebelliousness against God. But then in Genesis chapter 9, we see how God gave a sign as a remembrance to Himself and to all of humanity. That sign was the rainbow, and today still serves biblically And I mean to highlight that biblically versus culturally as to what the rainbow symbolizes as a significance in creation as to what God is doing and withholding judgment upon mankind who otherwise deserves that. God is significantly reminding us throughout the Scriptures in different ways. It's interesting to note as well that God uses food and times of fellowship as a representation, even in the meeting and eating of food as a sign of relationship. 
The significance of this is seen, for example, in the Scriptures in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, how there's a significance of how God creates the Garden of Eden and how they're able to enjoy all of these things and be in fellowship with Him. But from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they're not to eat from, for that would break the fellowship. Everything else, they're to eat and enjoy. Later on in the book of Exodus, we see as the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness under God's leadership, a pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day, how He leads them, how He provides for them daily. Through what? Through manna. Manna becomes a visual reminder that they are still in fellowship with God. Even though they have sinned against God, God provides for them, and they are reminded of that on a daily basis. We, lead, we learn later on in the very end of the Bible that God creates fellowship through the expression of a meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that all those who are in Christ will be to gather together with Him and with each other for those whose faith is in Christ. God gives us something as basic as food, as a sign of remembrance. I trust many of you perhaps are in the practice when you sit down at a meal, reminding yourself in the very presence of something as basic as food, God has provided, God cares, God is sustaining. Well, this is obviously clear today in our text in Matthew 26. I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew 26 to be reminded of this important sign that God gives. A sign that we need to be reminded of lest we forget the significance of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It is our practice at Grace Church to go through the Bible together. If you don't have one and you would like to have one like I have, just a printed version which we'd love for people to have, uh, those are available for you for free at the Welcome Center. You can just go back there and say, hey, here you guys have a free Bible. Could I get one of those? We'd be glad to give you one. Others choose to look on their phones or their tablets. Uh, We are in the book of Matthew. The teachings of Jesus as recorded from one of His earliest followers by the name of Matthew, himself a Jewish man, teaching about the Jesus of Nazareth, who was no one less than the Son of God and continues to be that even today. The main point of what we're going to learn today is that the Lord's Supper was given to the church in order that we might remember the sacrifice of Jesus for us and prepare for His return one day. To do all that, let's first of all learn, number one, the old days with the old ways. Now, our text primarily is going to be in Matthew 26, verses 26, but let me ask you just to get a sense of the scene. Go back to chapter 26, verse 1. It says in chapter 26, verse 1, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, was teaching earlier in the, on the uh, Sermon on the Mount, uh, not Sermon on the Mount, but the Olivet Discourse, He said to His disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming. It refers to the Passover. Now, jump ahead in your Bibles, if you would, to verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And then again, verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. 
And as they were eating, he began to teach. Number one, the old days with the old ways. The context in which our text is seen today in Matthew 26, specifically verses 26 to 30, is in the context of what's known as the Passover. Now, some of you are Jewish, you will know this well. Others of you are not, and you do not know what the Passover is about. And I want to make sure you understand it, because if you don't understand Passover, it's likely you're not going to understand what's going to happen in the next four verses that we're going to get to because it's significant historically and theologically. The Passover feast was marked by the start of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We saw that in verse 17. This was a week-long celebration. Preparations for the Passover meal would begin on a Thursday morning with a, a diligent search for any Leaven. Leaven is another word for yeast. You think about yeast and baking. This is this idea. Any leaven in the house that should be found and removed would be the practice. It was not to be used in the bread that was to be baked in preparation for the original exodus from Egypt. There would be a time to do this, this baking, but it should be unleavened bread. The leaven was also for the people of Israel, a symbol of evil. It was therefore not in any way to be present. Also on Thursday morning, the unleavened bread would be prepared for the feast. In the afternoon, the Passover lamb, a lamb that would represent that household. A lamb would be taken to the temple and slain as an offering in substitute for those people. After sunset, the actual Passover meal would be observed. This was normally a family gathering, or normally be at least 10, usually no more than about 20 in one household at one time, where they would be gathered together, seated around this. This would be a full, extensive meal, different courses and dishes. Some of your traditions and different family backgrounds, you can think of this as like a Thanksgiving meal. You think about a Thanksgiving meal or a Christmas meal. You think about just sort of the multiple hour-long, multiple dishes together. But it was not just eating, and it was not just people. It had significance to it. And just again, for those of you not familiar with the Scriptures, some of you are here today investigating Christianity and maybe just overall new to the Bible itself. Let me just explain briefly for you what's significant about this. This goes back in time historically to the people of Israel who at one time were being cared for in the land of Egypt by the Pharaoh because of Joseph's reign and place in the land of Egypt, but now were forgotten and eventually became and were made as slaves to the Egyptians. For over 400 years, believing that God had forgotten them. And after, as I referenced in weeks past, over many different ways in which God showed a sign to Pharaoh to let his people go, finally the tenth plague, as it was referred to, was going to be the sign of God bringing death upon the land, the firstborn of every household, every livestock, the firstborn of every household would die, unless and except for the people of Israel, if they took a lamb sacrificed it, and across the doorpost of their house, took the blood from that lamb, and therefore the angel of death, seeing that, would pass over them, and there would be no death upon their household. Then later on, after that time, they would exit Egypt. 
And every year thereafter, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the people of Israel would commemorate what God did. Now, I imagine today in the United States, there's a lot of people who perhaps practice the national holiday of Thanksgiving, and they have little to any historical understanding of how such a holiday came to pass and what exactly we're thankful for. All I know is that my wife is going to make an amazing bacon-wrapped stuffed turkey. It's going to be legit. And I'm going to get some cranberry sauce. That's going to be legit. It's not fancy. It's like the canned stuff you buy at Publix. But to me, that's legit. And then if some of you are invited, you're going to be asked to bring some side dishes. And I trust you're probably going to pull out the good stuff. And we're going to be thankful for that food and be thankful for the conversation. As to any kind of reflection on what happened back in some previous century in America and kings and England, yeah, like little to no thought of. All I know is I'm dining like a king right there in that moment. I say this because understandably, there's going to be a lot of Jewish people who could participate in the Passover and just know it's a phenomenal feasting time but might have little understanding of what its historic, historic reality was. Well, that's not what's happening here in the text. What's happening here in the text is they would have been observing it as prescribed by God in His Word for His people to remember Him and what He had done for His people. Passover was this imitation of the last meal in Egypt, eaten in preparation for the journey while Jehovah, while God was passing over the houses of the Hebrews, slaying the firstborn of the Egyptians. This Passover was a shadow of something else to come, and it's finally come. This takes us to the second part of our lesson today, which now is our primary text. Number two, the present practice for the historic reminder. Look now with me at Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup, and he'd given thanks. He gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is introducing something new here in the Passover meal. What's being highlighted under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the writings of Matthew is not the entire meal. What's being highlighted are two elements from the meal. To be fair, historically, as was seen, for example, later on in 1 Corinthians, it would often continue to be the practice for Christians for many years that the Lord's Supper would be observed at a time of a meal together but it does not require a meal to observe the Lord's Supper. What's being highlighted here 
by Matthew is what Jesus does with these ordinary elements present with a new purpose in mind, the bread and the cup. The significance is that He was taking bread and He was giving it a special meaning. He was taking the cup of wine and He gave it a special meaning too. He said that the bread was His body. Now, some of you come from Roman Catholic backgrounds. I'm sympathetic to that. My grandfather used to be a Roman Catholic priest. Obviously, he left the priesthood or I wouldn't be here today. If you're from a Roman Catholic background, you might not even be aware of this, but it's the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, a very fancy word called transubstantiation. That will impress your friends at school if you want to drop that term on them. Transubstantiation is the belief that when the Roman Catholic priest pronounces in prayer what he pronounces being ordained as a priest, that he has been given the power by the church to be able to convert the bread to the actual body and the wine to the actual blood of Jesus, recreating the act itself in that. Friends, that is not at all in any way what the Scriptures teach, specifically what Jesus is teaching here. Jesus is not present with them in person saying that this bread I hold in my hand, this bread that you're about to hold in your hand, this bread is my body. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is indicating that this bread is indicative. It is a visual, symbolic reminder. It is a memorial of the reality of what's about to take place in the coming hours. He will die. His body will be broken. His blood will be shed. And this bread and this wine is a reminder of that. That's what we describe as a memorial of the reality of that. There is no bread or wine being turned back into the body and blood of Jesus as if we're recreating over and over again the Scriptures. The bread and wine represented His body and blood about to be shed in keeping with what it says here in verse 20, the forgiveness of sins. Now, notice if you will what it says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, also to be clear, he is not saying if you take this, you will be forgiven of your sins. As if you just down a little bit of juice, pound some bread, do it in the church service, your sins are forgiven. It's not what he is saying. He's talking about as the reality of what would be later expounded on and explained in further detail by the followers of Jesus in Romans chapter 10, for example, that faith comes by hearing the word of Christ, that those who confess with their mouth and believe in their heart, Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, will be saved. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, it is by faith alone and Christ alone that one is forgiven of sins. What we're seeing here is the significance of what was talked about earlier in Jeremiah. Now, we have it for you on the screen. Well, you don't have it on the screen. I have it on my Bible. You have it in your Bible. If you want to venture there, let's do it. It's a few verses. Keep your hand in Matthew. Go to Jeremiah. You're like, where in the world is Jeremiah? Go to the middle of your Bible. That's the book of Psalms. Then turn a little bit to the right. A little bit to the right. You eventually get to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31. 
Jeremiah 31. It's a prophecy from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, I want you to just follow along in your Bibles. You might have different translations that I'm reading from. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, but you might have New International Version, King James Version, New American Standard. just want you to have a copy of the Scriptures and read along with us. Listen to the prophecy from Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. I want you to hear this and think about what Jesus is saying in verse 28 of Matthew 26. Jeremiah says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It's not like the Mosaic covenant. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Stop right there. Jesus, in verse 28 of Matthew 26, is talking about this text. Paul would later refer to this in 2 Corinthians about how we are new creatures in Christ, how we've been given a new heart. Friends, consider this. For those of you who are here who are Christians, think about this fact of what Ezekiel would say. Another prophet would say that God would remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. What's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that he would put the law of God in your heart where you would now have a new desire to live for God and honor Christ. That is the aftermath. That comes as a result of faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. What you see here in the text in Jeremiah and being referred to by Jesus is the promise of forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins, that this commemoration, this memorial of the Lord's Supper is illustrating visibly and meaningfully. While the blood of the Passover lamb sufficed to withhold the judgment of God for a time, the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Himself, would actually take away the sins of all those who would ever believe, John chapter 1, verse 29. This idea of unleavened bread symbolizes the incarnation of God in human flesh, not simply no being yeast present in actual bread. It's one that actually had no sin present in Him. While the bread relates to the earthly body and the sinless life of the Lord Jesus, the wine is a visual symbol of His shed blood and His violent death as the divine provision for men's forgiveness of sin. How many of you, by show of hands, have been to Washington, D.C.? Oh, a decent amount. You guys get out. That's impressive. If you've been to Washington, D.C., you've seen a number of the monuments. 
the Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Monument. Washington Monument is 555 feet tall. Its construction began even before Lincoln was president. Took 40 years to accomplish. This thing is gigantic. It's to commemorate the first president of the United States of America. I trust not as many of you have been out of the country, particularly to the country of India, but a number of you, even if you've not traveled to India, you have heard of the Taj Mahal. The Taj Mahal was built by essentially an emperor to honor the death of his wife who died while giving birth to his child. The Taj Mahal is to commemorate her life. Others of you, perhaps having not seen the Washington Monument or the Taj Mahal, can think of the pyramids in Egypt. The pyramids commemorating these great pharaohs and their power, the rule, as they saw themselves as demigods, as visual monuments. In fact, the oldest pyramid is known as the first and original seventh great wonder of the world. Friend, isn't it interesting that the most influential man in all of human history, Jesus of Nazareth, didn't want a monument, a bridge, a statue, a wall, a building to remember him. Instead, he would take two ordinary pieces that we are familiar with regularly, and when he'd use that to commemorate his life, his death, and eventually, as we would see in 1 Corinthians, his future return. It's remarkable to consider, by contrast, Jesus and his humility, what it was that he would give to the church to commemorate his sacrifice for sinners. Can I ask you today, in what are you placing your confidence for the forgiveness of your sins? What do you think of as being great and worth remembering? Not what will be the legacy of another, but what will be the legacy of yourself? How does something like a small piece of unleavened bread and a small serving of wine or juice commemorate something more profoundly significant? Which takes us third and final, the future time of a royal feast to come. The future time of a royal feast to come, realizing we don't have screens, just to remind you, number one, the old days with the old ways, number two, the present practice for the historic reminder, and then number three, the future time of a royal feast to come. Look back at, if you would, verse 29, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Verse 30, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is significant of what Jesus is speaking about here. We've heard of it in passing. If you've been with us for a while, if not, let me just read it to you. You're welcome to turn there. Otherwise, just listen to it. In Matthew chapter 8, 
Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, Jesus is speaking here, talking about the faith of the centurion as he asked for his servant to be healed. Jesus says in verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Later on in Revelation chapter 19, the very last book of the Bible, speaking of a time yet to still come, as John the writer says in chapter 19 verse 9, John says, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Friends, this is significant because what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 26, he's talked about Matthew 8. John writes about himself in Revelation 19. It repeatedly goes on throughout Scripture, and that is the grand and glorious promise of a future to come when all those who are in Christ by faith will dine together, will be united together in worship to the Lord, in unity with one another, as indeed they are together around the risen Savior. As Jesus speaks about the Father's kingdom, he's referring to the idea, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the triune Godhead, together as one, and how we are invited into that relationship. This is why it's so significant to recognize the Lord's Supper, hear me say this, and this will help you understand what's going to happen in a few minutes again this morning, the Lord's Supper is personal and it's communal. Personal and it's communal. Why do I say this? Because sometimes the myth of Christianity is this. The myth of Christianity is that it's very private. It's understandable, right-hearted, wrong-headed. Christianity is not private. Christianity is personal, but it's always public. And even the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is given to the church, to the disciples, and expected that they continue to practice together as they come together. In fact, the problem in 1 Corinthians, let's just have a quick little historical lesson here. In Corinth, a city like Miami, you've got a bunch of Christians gathering together. They gather on the first day of the week. That would have been a Sunday. Now, just so you know, back then, they're working on Sundays. They're not taking the day off. That's the first day of the week. It wasn't a Christianized place where they had Sunday off. But the problem was, those who were rich, who didn't need to work, they had servants working for them or other type of endeavors already invested well that they didn't need to work. They were starting to gather earlier in the day. And they were having a meal together. They're eating the food. They're drinking the wine. And they're not waiting to others of us who have to work throughout the whole day, can't get there until we get off from work, where we would gather together around the Lord's table to have that time together where we would commemorate the crucifixion of Christ for us. And so as a result of that, they have partiality. In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians, some of them are actually getting drunk. They've drank so much of the wine, they're actually drunk. And they're profoundly selfish because they're not waiting for other people. Paul has to confront and address this issue in 1 Corinthians 11. That's why he says within a few short verses, four different times, when you come together, when you come together. 
Friends, today, until the Lord returns again today, the significance of the Lord's Supper is not only personally as a point of reflection, is my faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sins, it's also a point of identification with other Christians around me that we want to reflect personally in humility and also collectively in community. That's why we sing together here at Grace Church as a part of our practice in taking the Lord's Supper. As we just hear each other's voices, hear each other. It's like, it's basically a dress rehearsal for heaven. We're like getting ready to worship Christ in person together. So we're reminded of that as we commemorate that work together as it's basically a dress rehearsal for the marriage supper of the Lamb. When you're not going to be talking about my wife's bacon-wrapped turkey. We're not going to be talking about that amazing canned cranberry. The feast that God will provide for us, the fellowship that we'll have together. As Revelation says, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered together. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Significance of what we see here is a future time of a royal feast to come, is what Jesus talks about in verse 29. And then lastly, I read it to you, but let me just explain it to you culturally, and then you're going to see it biblically. Verse 30, when they had sung a hymn. might be interesting for you to note, it was practice, it was a common practice during the Passover that they would sing together, particularly from the Psalms. Psalms 113 to 118 would be common uh, psalms that they would sing, and then towards the end of Passover, they would specifically sing from Psalms 115 to 118. You notice even today we had the reading of Psalm 116. That would have been a common psalm to hear. And so in honor of that, what I want to ask you to do is to turn to Psalm 117, and I'm going to sing it to you. You're like, no, you're not. I'm not going to sing it to you. But we're going to read it together. Psalm 117 and Psalm 118. And I want you to hear it. I want you to hear it freshly. Track with me. Psalm 117, Psalm 118. And I want you to envision Jesus and the disciples singing this. Because by the way, just so you know, the Psalms, the word psalm, P-S-A-L-M means song, S-O-N-G. These are songs used in worship of God. We're not going to sing it, but I'm going to read it, but I want you to hear it even as you're imagining in verse 30 how they are singing together. These truths, these these very truths that we're going to read, translated for us now in English, I want you to hear these truths as I read to you. Psalm 117. And then I'm going to go right from 117 into Psalm 118. Track with me. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. 
Out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. Think of us singing here today. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Verse 17, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Friends, did you just hear the shadow murmurings of the gospel? Of what was spoken and sung and read repeatedly year after year after year, countless times was fulfilled in Christ. Even what it says there in verse 22. What it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter himself would say in 1 Peter, that was Jesus. That was Jesus. Look earlier, if you will, in the text what it says, verse 5, out of distress I called the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. Friends, you are free if you're in Christ. Nothing man can do to you can fire you, can reject you, can kill you. There's nothing you have to fear. For the Lord is on your side in life and in death. When you participate in the Lord's Supper, you participate with the fullness of this in mind. We do this together until the Lord comes. 
Listen, at Grace Church, we might forget many things. We're a church of redeemed sinners led by leaders who are redeemed sinners. We're not omniscient. But one thing as your elders were committed to is to not let you forget the gospel. To not let you forget what God has given to us to remember. And that is the Lord's Supper. Then such a small sampling, a profound reminder of a grand big truth. The Savior laying down his life for sinners. The question is, is that you? Have you come to that recognition yet this morning? Do you desire to participate in this in obedience to the Lord? Not believing that the act itself forgives sins, only Christ can forgive sins. But the act commemorates what you've already believed. So I would just say to those of you who are not Christians, you are in the right place. However, this time of memorial is for those whose faith is in Christ. So if that's not something that presently defines and determines your present reality, that you have repented of your sins, ask God God to forgive you and put your faith in Him, then friend, see here as that tray passes before you, as elements are opened in front of you, see these elements for what they're intended to be, a reminder that would take something more than your good works, my good works, my family's good works, to gain me access and peace with God. For those of you who are in Christ, be mindful of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, to not do this in an unworthy manner, which means he's talking there about doing so to be knowledgeably in sin and not repent of that sin. Be right with God. Part of that means being right with each other. Relationships to be restored. Sin of yours to be confessed. So here's how we'll do this and how our practice at Grace Church many a times as we do this now. We'll do this again on Good Friday together. So we'll give you a chance with the distribution of elements. Now, just by the point of explanation, if you're on the sides, we have on the back of the pew in front of you different communion cups kind of prepackaged for you. We want to kind of respect those who want to have some, still some social distancing If you're in the center, we have trays that we're about to pass out to you. In just a minute, I'm going to pray. When I pray, while I'm praying, Pastor Chris Hudson and Pastor Trevor Dole are going to come up, grab these trays. Each of them have two trays, and they're going to kind of just kind of leapfrog each other, passing the trays down the center aisle. If you're not in Christ, let the tray pass. That's totally fine. If If you're in Christ but not ready to deal with the things in your life first, deal with those first. Let that tray pass. You're going to have, it's double stacked. You'll see a cup of wine on top of a little small cup of a piece of bread, an unleavened piece of bread. Grab both of those out. Take that time as you sit there to reflect. Confess whatever you want to confess. Pray whatever you need to pray. And when you're ready, take that cup of the bread as a representation of your awareness of your own sin of which Christ paid for. Hold on to that cup of wine. For those of you who don't wine, in the center of the tray is cups of juice. Hold on to that cup because it'll come back up and we'll have a time of singing. We're going to sing like we mean it. Which, if you're like, how do I do the singing and the phone holding and the how do I do this thing? If you need to set the cup down, you got little holders in the back of the pew, you can do that. But I believe in you. You can double barrel it, it's okay. It's going to be awesome. Chris is going to lead us in singing, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together.
by the drinking of the cup together. It's going to be awesome. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.